Well, again, a good morning to each of you and a warm welcome to our guests today uh, as we continue this sermon series, Building Faith by Building Bridges. And uh, over these past weeks, as I said earlier in the service, we have talked so much about the image of bridging, that God bridges to us with love and salvation, and we step on the bridge and encounter God fully. Amen. Uh, we talked about bridging to folks as we serve them, and we celebrated mission trips and mission projects. We talked about building to others in need and bridges of healing and restoration and hope and justice. And today we kind of talk about this bridge building that comes when we build bridges to our community. Now, it's somewhat connected to the concept of bridging to serve others, but it's really about being intentional about building relationships in the communities where we live, whether it's Long Grove or Buffalo Grove or, or Deerfield or Bannockburn or Vernon Hills or Arlington Heights or Wheeling. All of these places are the, are the, are the places we call home. This is where our congregations are located. And how do, we, how do we reach those communities? How do we build bridges? It's been fun talking to you in Bible study and in small groups and visiting about bridges. I mean, I never thought I would talk this much about bridges in all my life. Amen, right? So some of you have talked about uh, majestic bridges like Golden Gate or the Mackinac Bridge or a couple of you have been to the bridge in Sydney, Australia, and you've walked across the top of the arch, which actually paralyzes me, right, to think of that. And some of you have talked about smaller bridges, foot bridges, or uh, uh, swinging bridges, or, or small bridges that have gotten you to places. I, I bet a half of you have talked about the covered bridge in Long Grove, right? And how many times that poor bridge has been hit, amen, right? Uh, we've all, we all have bridges in our lives. Some of you have talked about practical bridges, like the bridge at Buffalo Grove and uh, 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 Lake Cook, that without at that intersection, would be lost in Buffalo Creek. And I think about uh, the importance of bridges. I think we take them for granted, right? You know, like I think about when I go to the Deerfield campus. If that bridge wasn't across the Des Plaines River, what would I do, right? Do, am I going to have to ford across it? Or would, would there be a ferry to take my car across or whatever? Or when I think about crossing the Mississippi, and some of you have talked about growing up in communities along the river, how important those bridges were to get back and forth uh, to that place called Iowa, right? You know, so um, all of that is a, a part of it. So we all can kind of relate to bridges, and they're not just unique to this country. We've seen bridges all around the world, right? And, and so I thought a lot about uh, those bridges. And, and then I've just paid attention more, like the bridge that goes between Field Elementary School and London Middle School. Have you ever seen it on Dundee? It's kind of really a steep set of stairs. It goes across and another set of stairs. And I paid attention to that. Like, that's a way children get back and forth between neighborhoods safely, right? So I'm grateful for that bridge. Or the bridge that goes across 83 from one park to the other. Uh, I've been on that bridge, you know, walking from one park to the other. And, and, and I'm grateful because I can't imagine scurrying across 83 and making it. Amen, right? Uh, so we all think about those, those images for ourselves. I also think about the importance of how sometimes bridges and roads have divided us, right? Like when I served in Chicago the first time, I was connected to two congregations, Mayfair United Methodist Church in the Mayfair neighborhood of Chicago, and then Irving Park United Methodist Church in the Irving Park neighborhood of Chicago. And in both of those congregations, inevitably, I would hear story upon story about when the Kennedy Expressway was built through 
how it divided all of those neighborhoods, right? Like Irving Park was sliced in half, and the Presbyterian Church was north of the freeway, and everyone else was south of the freeway. And, and, and it was so big, people not, didn't even dare to cross it, right? And then Mayfair, the Mayfair United Methodist Church, had once been in the heart of the community, and then it found itself on Wilson and the expressway, kind of separated from all the people that had once gone there. And so there, was, there were some tunnels, there were some attempts at bridging, but that never really happened, right? And, and we can all think of times where we've been separated from spaces wishing there were a bridge. Like even when you cross the Mississippi, uh, if you're not in the right town in the right place, there is no bridge, right? And you have to drive down and cross over it, right? So uh, those things are part of our life. One of the most fascinating bridges I, I encountered in my life was several, several, several years ago was um, in a, a place called Oak Park, Michigan. And I'm going to ask uh, Wesley to bring up, a, I don't know if you've ever seen this bridge in Oak Park, Michigan. Uh, it crosses an interstate that was built in the early 1980s across the north suburbs of Detroit. And uh, this is called Victoria Park uh, Bridge. And it, it crosses, I think it's Interstate 690. And um, you'll see, very interestingly, there are trees on that bridge. Do you see them? Yeah, if you look carefully. And the interesting story behind this uh, bridge is when the interstate was built, it was built right through the heart of the Orthodox Jewish community and neighborhood, right? And so it was a real challenge uh, for Orthodox Jewish folks to get to synagogue on Sabbath because for them on Sabbath, they don't drive there they walk, right? So can you imagine getting across that freeway uh, to your synagogue, which is in a different place? So eventually the state of uh, Michigan built this bridge, which is more like a park, to create a way for people to walk back and forth uh, to their, to their uh, community and to keep the community connected. Isn't that beautiful? I want to show you the next slide. You get a sense of it. Do you see the interstate coming in at the top? and then it'll come out below the bottom. And you see there's a playground and trees. That bridge doesn't look like a typical bridge, right? It was built as a way to help people connect. Now, I wish I could say the state of Michigan did that out of the goodness of their heart. It actually took us a lawsuit from several synagogues to get that bridge built. But it was built, right? And it's been through several manifestations. But when I was on and near that bridge, because I was so fascinated by it, that there would be this intentionality to build a bridge like that to connect communities together. Amen? Amen. So what does it mean for us to think about being the church and being creative in the way we build bridges to other people? And how do we build bridges to communities and how do we connect with people in ways that they can come to know the love of Christ? Amen? And if we're not intentional about it, if we think somebody else is going to do that bridge building, then somebody else will do it, maybe, but we'll miss the opportunity to be the church, right? Amen? And what, how are we being challenged to that? So if you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Luke. It's the third gospel. Gospel means good news. And you'll remember there are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? And Luke is the third one. Mark was the first one written probably after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, bringing all the stories of Jesus in a sense of urgency. Matthew wrote to a Jewish Christian audience, so he was concerned about genealogies and uh, law and legal connections. Uh, we do get a few important stories there, but Luke was writing to a Gentile, a non-Jewish Christian audience, 
uh, trying to bring these stories and teachings of Jesus to them. And, and, I, and frankly, of all the four, Luke's my favorite, really. So uh, when I die, make sure they read from Luke only. Amen, right? Okay. I'll hold you accountable. Anyway, Luke is a great gospel because I think Luke was a great writer. He had literary skill. He had ability to bring stories together. He, he takes Jesus' parables and places them beautifully. It's, it's a great book. And it's, this is the book we get, the birth stories and the stable and all of those great stories, the Good Samaritan. Uh, they all come from the gospel of Luke. So if you're with me, I turn in chapter 7, if you have a Bible. If you don't, there's a red one in front of you, or you can use your phone. Jesus has been talking about John the Baptist. We've encountered the centurion's faith. He's been talking about what it means to be a prophet. And even John's followers have come to him to see if he's the one, he's the Messiah, he's the chosen. And all of that sets the stage for today's story. So, beginning in verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house, and he took his place at the table. Now, we've been talking over these last weeks about the different sects of Judaism during Jesus' time in the Roman occupation. We've talked about scribes, Sadducees, priests, and Pharisees, remember? And the Pharisees were a group of people, mostly rabbis and teachers, who upheld the written law, the Torah, right? First five books of the Old Testament or Hebrew Scripture. But they also upheld the teachings and the commentary on the law as well. They believed in resurrection and eternal life, but they, because of the Roman occupation, felt it a deep task, and it's a faithful task, of upholding the faith and upholding the law, right? Amen? So they're kind of about that all the time. And we typically kind of demonize Pharisees, but there were all kinds of Pharisees, and clearly Jesus is friends with Pharisees because he's been invited to dinner, right? So Jesus is invited by a Pharisee. And some people say, well, it's a trap. Well, we don't know that. I mean, he was invited to dinner. And Jesus is a great example. Like, he doesn't always fully, uh, you know, he always has relationship even with people who are not necessarily with him, right? He's always willing. Because he, he could be as prejudiced against the Pharisees as the Pharisees are against sinners, right? So Jesus is constantly bridge building, right? You see what I'm saying? So he comes to have dinner with the Pharisees, this Pharisee, in his home. Now, there's one thing we're going to encounter a bit of the story that you need to know. When they sit at the table, you and I think of our dining room tables, right? Chairs, we pull up, maybe mom and dad are at the top and the bottom, or grandpa and grandma, or maybe, you know, I, who, I don't know how you do it, right? But we all have dining tables or kitchen tables or a bar or something like that, right? But in the ancient world, especially during Jesus' period, when you went in to sit down for dinner, you didn't sit down, you reclined, okay? Do you know what I'm saying? So the table is low, you're at the table with your feet behind you. So I'm going to show you, this is a big risk, but we're going to see it, right? So you would get down on your, see how I'm doing this? Pretty impressive. And then the table would be here and your feet would be behind you. I think it would be an awkward way to eat, frankly, but this is how it was. And then people would be around the table reclined eating like this. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, it's a little tough, right? Now let's see if I can get up. Praise the Lord. I can't, right? Amen. So you see, you see how this works. It's important for you to know that's how it worked because it explains the story better. So Jesus takes his place at the table. He reclines with his feet behind him. And as he does that, the story continues, 
a woman in the city, or sometimes they called a woman of the city, and everybody knows what that means, right? It's possible that this woman's a prostitute, and, uh, and she was a sinner, according to the Scripture. She has learned that Jesus is eating with the Pharisee, and she enters his house. Now, scholars go, and you may be going, how did she get in there? You know, how did that happen? Who let her in, right? And now, this is hard for us, but in the ancient world, uh, especially during Jesus' time, there were really more arches and openings into houses versus formal doors. There could be a gate that was closed at night, but the reality is houses were fairly open, so it wouldn't have been difficult for her to get in. There's some belief that she already knew Jesus and had, you know, checked his Facebook and knew where he was, right? And so she comes to the Pharisee's house. And then it says she brought an alabaster jar of ointment. Or as you heard in the other translation, which Wanda read, an alabaster jar of perfume, right? First of all, the alabaster, I don't know if you've ever seen alabaster. When we were in Egypt, we got to see them make alabaster jars. It's a very interesting stone, and it takes a lot of sanding and work to create this beautiful uh, vessel, right? So it was already probably pretty valuable. And the perfume or the ointment would have been very costly itself, right? And in some, you know, this story appears in some version in Matthew, Mark, and John, as well as Luke. Luke's is unique. The woman isn't named. It doesn't happen in Jerusalem. It happens in Galilee. And so there's some belief among scholars that this is not all one story, but there were a number of women anointed because even after this story, we learn that a number of women have been following Jesus and are a part of his entourage. You know what I'm saying? So whatever the case is, she brings in this alabaster jar of expensive ointment or perfume, and she stood behind him. And now you understand, right? It's not like she's crawling around under the table, right? She's literally behind him as his feet are reclined, and she begins to kneel down, and the scripture says she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, not shedding a few tears, but weeping. And if you've ever wept uncontrollably, you know what I'm talking about. The tears were falling massively. And she began to bathe the feet of Jesus with her tears and then to dry them with her hair. And then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with ointment. So this woman has come behind Jesus with his feet out, and she's wept over his feet, and she's wiped them with her hair, and then she's anointed his feet with that costly ointment in the alabaster jar. It's a very personal and intimate act. It's certainly an act of love and compassion, and yet we don't know what it all means. Now in verse 39, the Pharisee, remember him, who had invited Jesus, saw it. And he said to himself, he doesn't say it out loud, but he says it to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. So the Pharisee moves into a position of judgment, amen? And he moves into a position of, they've been talking about prophecy in the verses before, and so he's basically playing on that by saying, if Jesus really were the prophet people claim him to be, right? He would know who this is, and he would ask her to leave. And what's interesting in the next verse, in verse 40, Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So now we know his name, right? We don't know the woman's name, but we know the Pharisee's name. It's Simon. 
And he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon says, Rabbi, speak, or Rabbi, talk to me. And so he says this, and you think he's going to give him a lesson or say something confrontive, but he just does what Jesus does. He tells a story. And so here it goes. A certain creditor had two debtors, two people who owed him money. One owed 500 denarii. So let's say denarii together. Denarii. Let's try it again. Denarii. You've learned a good word today. You can share at work tomorrow. Uh, denarii is a day's wages, right? So I want you to think about that. One denarii is a day's wages. I want you to think about your salary. Break it down. One day, that's a denarii. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. That's 500 days of wages. That's a lot of money, right? Are you awake out there? I think you are, right? Amen. And the other had 50, which is still pretty high. And when they could not pay these debts, he canceled the debts for both of them. Remember, 500 days of wages. Now, which of them, Jesus said, will love the creditor more? And Simon the Pharisee says, and I think he says it sort of snarkily, I think. I don't know snarkily is a word, but I'll take it, right? Simon answered, I suppose the one whom he canceled the greater debt. You know, that I assume the one who had 500 days of wages debt canceled would love the creditor more for this act of generosity. And, uh, and Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. He affirms Simon's observation of the story. And then after the story has laid the foundation, Jesus does what Jesus does. He turns toward the woman and then he says to Simon, and this is my favorite part of the whole scripture, do you see this woman? Hear it again. Simon, do you see this woman? And then he goes, I entered your house, but you gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Now, what's interesting is, and it's hard to catch it because this is not our act of hospitality, but during the biblical period, during Jesus' period, during the ancient world, during this time of Roman occupation, there were three things you did when guests came in. And if you, we were in the Holy Land, so I just want to tell you, uh, if you're not up in northern Galilee, it's all pretty desert-like. Amen, right? And it's the finest dust I've ever seen in my life. Like, every night I came into the hotel, my shoes were covered in dust, right? So can you imagine wearing sandals, hot, hot desert life, and your feet are covered in dust? So the traditions were these when you offered hospitality to a guest, right? If a guest came, the first thing you did was you washed their feet or your servant washed their feet with water, right? Makes sense. Get the dirt off, Right? And then you would anoint their feet, uh, and then you would anoint their head with oil because the heat of the day might have created pain, and that oil would be a sign of anointing and healing. And you always gave a kiss. It, you would kiss the person as a sign of welcome, that you are really, really, really welcome here. So you would wash feet, you would anoint head, you would offer the kiss, you would recline at the table, and you'd have the meal. Do you, you see what I'm saying? But Jesus says to Simon the Pharisee, you invited me here, but you have not done any of these three things. I came, you did not wash my feet, you never anointed my head, and you certainly didn't greet me with a kiss, right? But this woman, who you have dismissed, 
has done more than that. She's done a radical act of hospitality in welcoming me. And what's the deal, right? And then he says, therefore I tell you, her sins which were many have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. Do you hear that? The one translation is, she was forgiven so much that she loved Jesus beyond belief, right? When you experience that kind of liberation from sin, when you experience that kind of forgiveness and transformation, you love the person who frees you. Amen? Just like the debtor who owed 500 days of wages, he's going to love the banker who releases the debt. Right? Amen? Right? What a gift. And then Jesus continues, but the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. If we don't have this experience of forgiveness and restoration, then we kind of draw back and constrict and we offer very little love. And then he says to her, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And then you'd think the whole room would go bananas because that would be wonderful, right? I mean, here's this woman with such a hard journey and she's come and had this amazing experience with Jesus and offered radical hospitality to him and, and here her life is going to be transformed and Jesus has offered her forgiveness and restoration. Hello, folks. Are you awake out there? This is a big moment, right? Thank you. But those at the table don't see it that way. In fact, in verse 40... Nine, but those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who is this that forgives sins? There's already doubt and casting and they can't see the moment. And then Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. What a beautiful word. Her faith, some translations, her love has saved you, go in peace. And this isn't regular peace. Like, oh, I feel better, right? This is deep shalom. This is wholeness. This is restoration. This is new and abundant life, right? Right? And remember, I know you don't like to hear it. I don't either. That when Luke writes and puts these stories of Jesus together, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, but often the Pharisees are the church, right? Sometimes the church doesn't see the woman. Do you see her? Do you see this woman? Do you see this man? Do you see this group of people? Do you see your community, James, right? And what will you do about it? Will you turn and be snarky at the table? Or will you offer radical hospitality? See, you think the comparison is the Pharisee, Simon, and Jesus, but the story's really about Simon and the woman. Simon, the religious authority, the leader in the synagogue, the person who's supposedly got it all together, misses the whole boat. It's a woman who's a sinner, a woman of the city, who offers radical hospitality to the Savior and is blessed and sent forth in peace, right? The gospel always challenges me to think about things differently, to look at things differently. And when I can get a little bit self-righteous, I know you don't, but I do, right? Well, there's people. Rah, rah, rah. But the reality is Jesus always turns it and twists it and reminds me that just when I think I'm on board, I'm not. Do you see? Do you see? And so, friends, I invite us as the church called Kingswood, and as the church, how will we see people in our communities, whether it's Long Grove or Buffalo Grove or uh, uh, Vernon Hills or Libertyville or, or Deerfield or 
wherever it might be, Northbrook, whatever it is, how do we see people and how do we reach out in community? How do we do it, right? How do we make it happen? How do we connect with people? And how are we intentional? And when Jesus says, do you see? Do you see? Do I see? This week I was uh, down the street uh, at my bank kind of dealing with some stuff and I had to talk to two folks and we met in their office and they said, now remind me what you do. And that's always an interesting question, right? I said, well, I'm a pastor. Oh, you're a pastor. Where are you a pastor? And I said, well, right down the street. I said, well, just right down the street here on Dundee. Oh, the pumpkin church, right? I don't know about you. I just never really wanted to be known as a pumpkin pastor, right? But, but that's what God keeps throwing back in my lap, right? Uh, people know me for pumpkins, right? Well, okay, let's do it, right? And we had this amazing conversation, these two women and me, about church and about faith and about pumpkins, right? Do you see these people. Or the other day I was uh, at a theater for a movie and ran into somebody who had seen me somewhere and I think I know you and I do know you and, uh, and, 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 and where are you at at the church? Oh, that's the church with the homeless shelter, right? And then another day was in the grocery store and Oh, we, we know your church. Your church is known for its food pantry, right? Those are all good things. But what, what is God calling us to now? What new mission is going to happen? You know, we need people to help staff the pad shelter. Do you know that? We open in October, Tuesday nights. Did you know it? Hello, are you awake? Right. Yes. We need people to do the third shift, right? Three to seven. Wow. That sounds horrible to me, right? But God's saying, well, do you see, right? Or a cleaning shift from 7 to 8. You know, I can barely clean my house, let alone this church, amen, right? But is Jesus saying, do you see? Are there new ways? Like, I love our outreach team. Like, every time I go across the street to businesses across the street, oh, you're the church with the cocoa, right? Or when I go next door to the fire station to ask a question, oh, you're the people who buys pizza, right? That's what I want to be known for. That's what we want to be known for, right? And what else is God calling us to? Is God calling you to the outreach team? Is God calling you to gifts for all God's children? Is God calling you to, you see what I'm saying? And here's what often happens, friends. Oh, someone else needs to do that. And Jesus says, Oh, no. Do you see? Do you see? And will you answer and say yes? It's hard. It's beautiful. Because you know what's great about this story? This woman became a follower of Jesus. We know that. And the next verse is all kinds of women follow Jesus, right? Because Jesus saw them. And Jesus restored them. And Jesus offered salvation to them. Right? And now Jesus is saying to you and me, because we're the church. I don't know if you knew that. It's not just me. It's all of us. Do you see? Will you build a bridge? Will you be the bridge? Will you? Do you see?